Oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling Clementine, you are lost and gone forever, dreadful sorry, Clementine. In a canyon, in a canyon, excavating for a mine, dwelt a miner, forty-niner, and his daughter, Clementine. Oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling Clementine, you are lost and gone forever, dreadful sorry, Clementine. Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 13, The Wilmot Proviso. The Presidency of Zachary Taylor, Millard Fillmore, and the Compromise of 1850. During this series, I've at least tried to deliver a small slice of information about who antebellum Americans were, what they believed, and what the major social divides facing the nation were as well. Yet all of that is about to begin funneling into a mostly narrow channel about one major issue. Slavery. Everything has been leading up to this, and in fact a key event in 1846, just as the Mexican-American War began, was about to light the slow-burning fuse. But if it had not, there was an awful lot of gunpowder left very carelessly about, if you take my meaning. We've explored the tensions that President Polk built up, tensions he was happy to exploit for his own ends, but we've only thinly scraped the consequences so far. Even in 1846, while the war was still being fought out in northern Mexico, a group of very, very unhappy congressmen hatched a plan. They wanted to sting Polk in a particularly cutting way, and they found a very convenient option. On August 8th, Congressman David Wilmot stood up in the House of Representatives and proposed an amendment to the Appropriations Bill for the war. That very day, Polk had requested the funds needed to continue the battle, and the Wilmot Proviso would add bitter medicine for him to take with it. What did David Wilmot demand? Simply put, he proposed that all territory taken in the war be brought into the Union completely free of slavery. This might have been a fairly conventional bit of political grandstanding, except for one salient fact. David Wilmot was not a widely known anti-slavery activist. He wasn't a Northeasterner. He wasn't even a Whig. Yes, that's right, Wilmot and his friends came from Polk's own party. But Wilmot's circle of Northern Democrats were exceptionally displeased about what they saw as an obnoxiously pro-Southern administration, one that was putting the interests of slaveholders ahead of well, everyone else. They saw Polk, not without good reason, as a backstabbing conniver who had used them for his own purposes, but who then betrayed his northern constituents in numerous ways, starting but not finishing with Oregon. Polk and many around him publicly lashed out at Wilmot and his friends, and claimed that the idea of expanding slavery into the west and southwest was obviously silly. Admittedly, much of the region was not and never would be conducive to plantation agriculture but Polk conveniently ignored the diversity of the region he wanted. Texas, of course, already harbored a non-trivial slave population, and many plantations already. And many of the western river valleys held the promise, if not definite opportunities, for the expansion of the slave economy. For that matter, Polk's claims were hard to believe given the attitudes of many pro-slavery men in his own party, who were openly salivating about the possible gains they could make in the southwest. One Southern newspaper openly claimed that by doing so, they would tip the balance of political power in the United States in their favor forever, and more than a few Southern politicians agreed. The idea of expanding slavery might or might not have been a fantasy, 
but it was a fantasy with broad appeal in some quarters. The Wilmot Proviso failed to take hold, but it heralded a bitter onrushing dispute. It did not create fury so much as reveal the divide already dawning. Further, as the Mexican-American War ground to its final conclusion, the August Henry Clay, still grieving for the son he lost in that conflict, emerged to give a much-heralded speech in which he openly condemned the war, a clear sign that the war's popularity had severely eroded. But Clay, though a slave owner himself, also endorsed the Wilmot Proviso and arguably began the long transformation of the Whigs into the Republicans and into becoming a true anti-slavery party. Abraham Lincoln happened to be in attendance that day, and it is clear that both Clay and that speech in particular had a profound impact upon him. One might even say that Lincoln devoted his life to being the second Henry Clay, trying to fulfill the dreams and ideals that even Clay himself could not fully live up to. I should hasten to point out two facts for the moment, however. While senators from slave states and their allies held a thin majority in the Senate, enough to quash the proviso, on the ground people were less united on any side. The issue of Texas had strained the bonds of northern and southern Whigs just as territorial slavery was doing to the Democrats. But nonetheless, party conflict, not sectional feuding, still defined politics throughout the country. And second, the war and its resulting victory helped smooth over much of the tension, at least for the moment. Three-ish significant reactions existed over how the ceded territories should be run. To simplify matters, the first group, kickstarted by Wilmot but seemingly without a clear voice or leader, favored banning all slavery from the lands, including those south of the old Missouri Compromise Line. A second group, mostly Northerners under Lewis Cass, but with some slave state support, endorsed the idea that the territories themselves could make that decision. A third group, led by John C. Calhoun, naturally supported in theory completely opening the West to slavery, but in practice allowed a certain amount of compromise, perhaps extending the Missouri line again West. Although it will only become important in retrospect, the leaders of this last group would go on to be among those who led the Confederacy out of the United States. And indeed, they were at this time willing to threaten secession, although it was still no more than hot air. These political factions emerged and became sufficiently divided that naturally nobody did anything, leaving the territories mostly ungoverned and in a state of confusion. Though mostly controlling themselves in practice, the problem of slavery in the territories would cause intense sectional chaos and ultimately civil war. Into this increasingly volatile mix, we now turn to the presidential election of 1848. Agitation on both sides would only heat up, but while slavery became a major factor in the election, it still wasn't the only issue on the table. For Whigs, the election came as a mixed blessing. The sudden end to the war meant that their anti-war rhetoric, though with unambiguous support for the soldiers fighting it, no longer made political sense, and they had to rapidly switch gears. The gear they found was Zachary Taylor, the beloved and heroic conqueror of northern Mexico. This was a rather big pill to swallow for the Northern Whigs because Taylor appeared on the surface to have at best only a slight loyalty to the party and openly acknowledged his ideology to be Jacksonian in character. Furthermore, Taylor was a slave owner, which now looked awfully suspect. Nonetheless, he offered the Whigs a crucial element of celebrity and military glory that strongly advanced the party cause. Awkwardly, the Whigs couldn't agree on that cause, 
Two especially prominent Southern Whigs, Robert Toombs and Alexander Stevens, both of Georgia, complicated matters. Now remember these two. They are important. Between them, they held immense influence over Southern Whigs, and the two will start as Unionists but end up in the Confederacy eventually, though in very different ways. For both men, slavery was fast becoming the one and only issue. The reason this mattered in 1848 is that it prevented the Whigs from even creating a party platform, and further, Taylor's candidacy was only acceptable to them because he was a slaveholder. For his part, Henry Clay accepted his political defeat again. But crucially, Daniel Webster also turned down the vice president slot on the ticket, which then went to Millard Fillmore of New York. Taylor was no stranger to politics, and in fact he had often communicated with the influential Senator Crittenden of Kentucky in order to speak his fiery opinions regarding the Polk administration. He harbored real ambitions for office, though it remained up in the air as to whether he really believed they were achievable. Reputedly, when informed that the Whigs had selected him to run for the presidency, he replied, Stop your nonsense and drink your whiskey. But he cannot have been too surprised because he had been making preparations and building political connections for years. Ironically, the group most opposed to Taylor's candidacy were the New England Whigs, led by the Immortal Fourteen, who had openly denounced the Mexican-American War from the start. I say ironically because they are actually going to end up the most pleased with him in very short order. Old John Quincy Adams, formerly president himself and a long-serving congressman for Massachusetts, led this group until his death in 1848. His passing actually helped Congress find a compromise on the Mexican territorial concessions, but it also signaled the end of the era. He was one of the last leaders born before the Revolutionary War, and, as the son of one of the Founding Fathers, he had known others personally, and now that link to the early Republic was gone. For the Democrats, Lewis Cass took the nomination. Now, we haven't really discussed Cass, but he was an important politician who had served in numerous government roles with a long and respectable public career, as well as having lost out to Polk four years earlier. Given the important role that slavery was playing in politics, we should understand that Cass favored his own policy known as popular sovereignty, which I described briefly above. This stance suggested that people in a given territory ought to be allowed to make their own determination on the slavery question. Cass intended this as a kind of neutral position that would allow a compromise and ease sectional tensions. It won't go anywhere in the short term, but this idea will become a cornerstone of Stephen Douglas's policy a few years down the line. Also, just as a crazy aside, Cass was, quite literally, the original Michigander. He also had the fun of receiving a pointed and jocular speech from an obscure Illinois congressman known as Abram Lincoln? Oh no, sorry, that was Abraham Lincoln. My mistake. But don't worry, that guy's of no importance. After the Whigs and Democrats had made their choice, however, a large group of disgruntled, mostly anti-slavery politicians began to talk, and a new movement gathered steam. These were almost exclusively Northern Democrats and a group of anti-slavery politicians called Conscience Whigs. While their ideologies differed, as you may expect, the two were united under the idea that the West should remain free of slavery. Taylor, a slave owner, and Cass, with his concept of popular sovereignty, seemed a distinct threat to both groups. Accordingly, they managed to pull off an impromptu merger with the tiny Liberty Party and founded the Free Soil Movement solely to contest this election. The origins of the party are rather... weird. Martin Van Buren, yes that guy is still out there fighting, 
did not care much for all of this expansion of slavery talk, and he took his barn burner faction of New Yorkers with him. He got into touch with hardline anti-slavery abolitionists, especially in New England, and some of the Wilmot-supporting Democrats. Now, separately, they were having no impact on American politics, but joining forces would require everybody to compromise on matters they did not much care to compromise on. But even so, they managed to do it, and they created a new political party almost from scratch. The Free Soil Party turned out to have surprisingly broad appeal, with a platform that mixed Whig and Democrat ideology. Further, while a raw appeal to anti-slavery on purely moral terms would likely have gone no further than previous abolition sentiments, the Free Soilers carefully couched their approach in language and policies designed to attract white voters. This did cause more radical abolitionists to dismiss the Free Soil Party as white supremacy under a different label, and there is some justice there. But in fact, the party would strengthen and define anti-slavery ideology in 1848, and it would go on to slowly but surely push the Whigs to a harder line and turn. There are a few names I want to mention as being prominently associated with the Free Soil Party, although the party itself will fail to win significant political office and will never exercise national influence, it held some very, very influential people within its orbit. Many of these will become key figures before or during the Civil War. First, let me mention Salmon P. Chase, an amazingly energetic Ohio lawyer and politician whose dedication to abolition could not be questioned, although his strict but bitter personality earned him no friends and few admirers. Chase, in fact, wrote the Free Soil Party platform, and was probably the single most important driving figure behind the party's founding and influence. We will end up discussing his career in much more detail down the line, however. Now second, we have our old friend John C. Fremont because somehow he found the time to promote the Free Soil Party in between traveling and exploring the West, striking it rich, and being court-martialed and then receiving a presidential pardon. Fremont briefly became a senator for California, and more or less pure chance kept him from continuing in that role. Third, we have Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, an anti-slavery conscience Whig who also allied with the Free Soilers. Sumner will enter Congress in 1851 after a coalition of Democrats and Free Soilers take control of the government of Massachusetts, whereupon Sumner will inadvertently become a living symbol of the victims of slavery. Last, but certainly not least, we have of all people, Walt Whitman. If you're not familiar with his work, or just find the name only vaguely familiar, Whitman will become the author of some of the most important and distinctly American poetry. But in 1848, young Whitman was still a reporter and chronicler of New York's energetic day and seedy nightlife. Whitman proved a changeable and strange figure, moving his political inclinations along with the spirit of the times he so thoroughly understood. If you are not familiar with his work or happen to be foreign to these American shores, I highly recommend Whitman's Leaves of Grass, an iconic work of transcendentalist literature. Anyway, on Election Day, the returns were strange. While the Northeast went almost entirely for the slaveholding Southerner Taylor, excepting Maine and Vermont, the Midwest stuck with Cass, and the South divided more or less evenly. Now, with backing from strong states like New York and Pennsylvania, plus other valuable electoral wins like Kentucky and Tennessee, Taylor won with a comfortable margin. The Free Soil Party may have helped or hurt his chances slightly on the balance, it's hard to tell, but almost certainly it did not change the outcome. But it did make this one of the most unusual electoral maps in American history. 
In any event, Taylor had become president over the grumbling of anti-slavery activists. Yet as it turned out, President Taylor was no friend of the slave interest itself, and made it very clear that he was a leader for the entire country, not a narrow or sectional interest. California would become his legacy in a way, as the last president to truly attempt a course away from disunion. California became an issue because something very unusual was afoot on John Sutter's land, and it would rebound, of all things, to John Fremont's immense fortune. On January 24th of 1848, Carpenter James Marshall found shining metallic flakes in the water of a mill race for a yet uncompleted sawmill. Looking upon it, he thought it could be gold. Just imagine, gold up in them thar hills. Sutter, though probably shocked, agreed that it was gold. The first samples eventually went to San Francisco, where among others, Lieutenant William Tecumseh Sherman would confirm the authenticity of the strike. The samples eventually went to Washington, where they fired the imagination of thousands upon thousands who flooded into California to strike it rich. The gold rush was about to knock a hole in the carefully laid plan of national expansion, as well as upset the political ideas of basically everybody. The complication lay in two parts. First, California had no slaves. And second, it was being settled heavily long before almost any of the intervening space. Apart from a handful of Mormons in Utah, and some small towns inhabited by the people who had, in the span of a few decades, gone from Spanish subjects to Mexican citizens and finally Americans, very little European-originated civilization existed between Missouri and California. Yet the population boom led to the latter territory being organized far more rapidly than anyone expected or imagined just a year earlier. California boomed so fast that it qualified for statehood at a time when American civilization was still settling land in the states immediately west of the Mississippi. In 1849 alone, more than 80,000 Americans arrived in California, around eight new citizens for every one who lived in California before. And by 1860, the population of California would quadruple atop of that. This put a shockingly powerful strain on the Republic. Because there were no slaves in California, at least as the new settlers did not count the Native American or American Indian population as such, the new settlers wanted to block out slavery because they feared that it might lead to the masters dominating the gold strikes. In addition, there was a hearty dose of racism, which we, again, should always acknowledge, and many people just did not want the competition. That may be very, very dumb in retrospect, but that's what people felt. Now, as for John Sutter, well, he was ironically ruined by the gold rush. He was never able to control his land against the massive influx, and he ended up impoverished and left the family's holdings to his son, named John Sutter Jr. The younger Sutter would in time become a well-respected figure in California history, and he wrote his own name in the state's legend. Now, as for Fremont, he ended up hilariously wealthy. He had purchased some land with a stronger title and claim than Sutter's, and by the wildest chance, it happened to become a rich gold field in itself. Fremont then entered politics, easily winning one of the first two California Senate seats, which in turn rapidly led him, as mentioned, to anti-slavery politics in his brief half-year term. But don't worry, it's not going to end there. If you want more Fremont, stay tuned, because in just a few more years he's going to vie for the presidency itself, and will then go on to further misadventures in the Civil War. 
The territory of California experienced and endured this explosive growth, so that it rapidly reached and then far exceeded the minimum required to apply for statehood. Yet officially, it was not even an organized territory because of the deadlock in Congress. For pro-slavery Southerners, a California without slavery could tip the electoral balance against them, and so it wouldn't be permitted. John C. Calhoun's increasingly strong influence over Southern politics made it almost impossible to get anything through the Senate, and he was pushing some extreme and extremely dubious theories to justify his position. For example, he argued that Congress didn't even have the right to regulate slavery in the territories. With this argument, he was pushing the idea of states' rights as far as it could possibly be stretched solely in the pursuit of defending slavery, and in doing so he was validating ideas yet more extreme. Meanwhile, a range of Whigs, Northern Democrats, and Free Soilers were still rock-solidly behind the Wilmot Proviso. Coming into office in 1849, amidst the massive gold boom in California, President Taylor looked at this problem and then simply ignored it. He instead pushed for California to become a state immediately, bypassing the territorial phase entirely. This would also inherently bypass the tricky question of slavery in the territories, because Southerners had to acknowledge the right of states to decide as they would on the issue. Further, Taylor supported the admission of New Mexico, which was a poke in the eye of Texas, because that state claimed all the New Mexico territory as well. I will note that no one else really strongly backed Texas on that issue. You can well imagine the fury that Calhoun unleashed upon this particular idea. More worryingly, however, Southern Whigs such as Robert Toombs and Alexander Stevens also reacted with shock, believing that President Taylor had betrayed them. They had quite thoroughly convinced themselves that Taylor was totally pro-slavery in secret, although in fact he had never really given any such indication. They just kind of assumed it because he was a Southerner. Worse yet from their perspective, the Northern Whigs, Democrats, and Free Soilers might actually have just enough votes to pass the Wilmot Proviso, and Taylor reminded everyone that he did in fact mean what he said about supporting Congress's resolutions on the matter. Another problem now for the pro-slavery faction lay in the very fact that they had prevented California from being organized as a territory at all. Some among them wanted to split California in half, reserving the southern portion for slavery. This apparently sprang in part from ignorance of the relatively dry climate and rocky landscape there, quite unsuitable for plantation slavery. However, they could not do this without organizing the territory, which they refused to do. Yet they had also been among those publicly calling to invite Texas into the Union directly, and similarly without a territorial phase or being part of a previous state, as with Kentucky or Maine. There was now effectively ample precedent for adding California as Taylor wished. Indeed, technically Fremont's band had declared California independent of Mexico before it had been added to the territory of the United States, so in theory there was an even more direct similarity to Texas. Taylor took matters a step further after Stevens and Toombs dared to confront him in their White House. You see, Toombs and Stevens had not been merely arguing strenuously. They had been promising straight-up rebellion and a dissolution of the Union if they didn't get their way. Taylor did not exactly take this well. Specifically, he declared that he would quite happily lead an army to hang all the traitors if necessary, showing a bit of that old Jacksonian steel. You may imagine that Toombs and Stephen didn't come out of the meeting all that happy either, and if so, you imagine right. 
Both men would take a backseat in the near term, however. Into this volatile mix rode Henry Clay to Washington to prefer a compromise solution, which he hoped would diffuse the sectional tension permanently. He presented a series of bills designed to lure everyone into negotiation, which at least would get them talking. Clay's Compromise Bill, introduced in January of 1850, paired off specific policy desires for both Northern and Southern congressmen, intending that the total package could attract a majority, and at the same time would represent a long-term compromise that could ease all of this fury. Without getting too deep into the specifics, the net effect would be to break the stalemate in Congress by giving Taylor his goals in New Mexico and California, and ending the slave trade in Washington at least. On the other hand, his bills would allow slavery in the territory won from Mexico, if the people living there chose, had the federal government assume Texas's pre-statehood debts, and it did permanently enshrine slavery in the District of Columbia. Clay also allowed a couple more carrots for recalcitrant Southerners, including, most particularly, a stronger law to allow them to recover fugitive slaves. In practice, the act would effectively extend the existing North-South division of slavery, but it did on some level appear to set a compromise that everyone could hopefully live with. Spoiler alert, this will all cause a lot of trouble very quickly. There are good reasons to think that Clay was actually thinking ahead, strategically limiting slavery in the long run, but also offering a sop to the Cass and Calhounite factions. But in the short run, it did a great deal of damage. The level of argumentation and rhetoric only increased rather than decreased in the following months. Here, we see William Seward take the national stage, delivering his famous, and to some degree infamous, higher law speech, to condemn slavery with the sword of morality. Likewise, Daniel Webster rose to the greatest heights of rhetoric to defend his beloved nation, and a bitter and dying Calhoun delivered his litany of complaints and accusations against the North, although by proxy he could no longer speak. Now, Congress did eventually pass the Compromise of 1850 in September of that year, but only after an exhausted Clay had to leave town to recuperate. Instead, Senator Stephen Douglas, who is shortly going to become the linchpin of national politics, made his first mark in public by hammering out a series of paired-off parts of the Compromise and ramming them through one by one to pass the whole bill, just piecemeal. Now, before we move on, I want to roll back a year so that we can bring in Jefferson Davis, the man who would eventually lead the Confederacy in the Civil War. Down the line, I do have a biographical episode uh, planned for the man. His life is genuinely dramatic, and I don't just want to hate him. I don't just want to curse him, even though he did immense and unrecoverable damage to the nation. For today, however, understand that Davis was a United States Senator and an ardent Calhounite, intellectually respected by his peers, but not really emotionally beloved by many. In 1849, John C. Calhoun had called for a convention to threaten secession if the Wilmot Proviso was enacted, and this met in Nashville, Tennessee in June of 1850. Now, most southern states, excepting Missouri, Kentucky, or North Carolina, sent delegates. Yet it is really not clear how serious any of this theater was. In fact, I, I, I don't think there was any real fire there. Now, Jefferson Davis, perhaps caught up in the moment, charged well out in front on the issue of slavery and secession, and he ended up running right off a political cliff when the conventioneers adopted a fairly conservative and conventional stance. Pro-slavery, yes, but not revolutionary. Davis, stung by the implied rebuke, 
would resign from Congress and then lose an election for the Mississippi governorship. He would eventually return to political life and earn an even greater reputation. In fact, he would become known as a quiet opponent of fire-eating secessionists, but that lay in the future. Back in Washington, however, something very unfortunate occurred in the middle of all of these events that would have some slow but agonizing repercussions on the Whig Party. On July 4, 1850, President Taylor attended a number of festivities during a hot day. Nearby, the unfinished Washington Monument rose towards the sky. The president intended his presidents to spur additional donations, still needed even at this stage, to finish the work. On this day, George Washington's adopted son spoke to the crowds, while Taylor ate fruit and drank iced milk. Five days later, on July 9th, Taylor died. The days in between were spent in excruciating stomach pain and fever, a sudden illness that sapped his strength and drained more life than the old warhorse could spare at this hour. We don't know what precisely killed him, but based on the records, he likely contracted a stomach illness from something he ate, almost certainly on that faithful July 4th. For the Whigs, history repeated itself. Once again, a popular Whig president died early in office, in a campaign where Henry Clay had passed on the honor of vice president. This time, at least, Vice President Millard Fillmore was a loyal Whig, though he would inadvertently prove almost as devices as former President Tyler in the end, and cripple the party's chances of ever contesting a presidential election. He was not a bad man, but he had a weak power base next to the giant orators of the day. Zachary Taylor, on paper, does not have a great legacy as president. It doesn't appear that he accomplished much. But I want to point out that his line was the last of a truly national vision. He was the last statesman who wanted to actually deal with slavery. He faced the issue head-on, and he did not flinch. He set the stage for the Compromise of 1850, and I do think that had he lived, he might have come to a stronger resolution and helped the country move forward. It would not have been an end to slavery, but it is possible that President Taylor could have begun the end of slavery. Maybe that would not have happened. He was a slave owner himself. And we will never know. But much worse for the nation, all those great leaders and statesmen, the men who defined the antebellum period, well, they were beginning to slip away one by one, leaving a nation divided despite or because of their best efforts. We've already mentioned John Quincy Adams, but remember he died in 1848. Polk followed in 1849. Calhoun died right in the middle of the Compromise Bill in 1850. With Henry Clay and Daniel Webster would, frankly, decline very rapidly. They would follow in 1852. For all of their personal faults and weaknesses, none of these men were for disunion or destruction, not even Calhoun. And for all of the efforts of Clay, Taylor, and Webster, the country was now falling into a long, spiraling path towards war. Calhoun presciently warned of this possibility, but in his usual way, ignored the numerous things he did and the ideas he promoted which made political collapse and civil war almost inevitable. Calhoun insistently blamed the North, which didn't precisely exist as a political or perhaps even cultural concept outside of his imagination. He set the stage for a climate of fear and paranoia among Southerners, which, unfortunately, they created for themselves. As this takes firmer hold... Violence will not be long in following. The men who followed Calhoun had all his bitterness and resentment, but they lacked his insight or judgment. And I do want to emphasize Calhoun really did have considerable judgment. 
He managed to outlast Andrew Jackson, no mean feat, and he spread his influence across many leaders of the South. His criticisms of the North, so far as they went, cut to the bone. And that is something I do want to emphasize. Pro-slavery men would, in the very near future, go on the ideological offensive. And what they said was often true. They would oppose the cruelties and dehumanization of industrialization, and they were often quite right. But against this, they had no more than a pretense that slavery was miraculously kinder and better, which convinced only those who wished to be convinced. And by tying their authority to slavery, well, they made slavery their master. Next time, I'd like to talk about those who fought against that master. So join us next episode for The Underground Railroad. That's all for today, and I hope you've enjoyed tuning in to the American Civil War Podcast.